Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Every week we come here and we worship God, and part of our worship of God is to ask him to teach us from his word. And scripture refers to this as the washing of the word. A very good image. If you've had the privilege this summer of getting dirty, working, sweaty and dirty, you know what a joy it is at the end of a long day to go and peel off your clothes and put them in a washing machine. And miraculously, they end up clean. And then putting your body in the shower. And you come out and you feel so good. Well, that's how we should feel with Scripture. The problem is that the very points at which Scripture is washing us are the very points that we get angry. Because we love our dirt, which is sin. So when we read something in Scripture that shows our sin to us, we get angry. And we judge it. And of course, when we judge Scripture, we judge God. But the problem with that is if we're judging Scripture then we're not being washed by it. You know, it's like the little child that hates baths and kicks and screams and splashes and screams and kicks and splashes. And what does the mother do? Well, the mother just gives up, right? Well, no. And so it's just a nasty job. And that's why scripture says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And if you were to listen to me preaching and you were to come to the conclusion that I'm the offense, sometimes it's true. But generally, I'm not the offense. Generally, the offense is actually in God. He's the one that said what he said in Scripture. And if you find yourself judging what Scripture says, you know, always judge what I say and see if it's in Scripture. But if what I say is in Scripture and you're angry, realize you're not angry at the quote, authors, the human authors of Scripture, you're angry at God. And there are a lot of reasons for us to be angry at God with the text we're about to read this morning. So let's jump right in. Because if all I do is preach to you the things in a text of Scripture that you like and think that they comport well with your sense of justice and and progress and enlightenment, I'm an idiot. What I want to do is show you where the Word needs to wash you. And that necessarily always means that I go to the place where you think Scripture's wrong. And that's where we get washed, all right? So let's hear the Word of God this morning. We're picking up the story, the history of Abram and Sarai, fathers in the faith, the patriarchs. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please, say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. 
Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. This is the word of the Lord. The Reverend Dr. Hare, her, Hare, Hare, Professor Jurgen von Hagen. Did I get it right? All right. He is back. Wave. Or the boy is back in town. Jurgen is writing a book on the Bible and economics, and I think it was a year ago, or almost a year ago, where he was explaining to me the interesting economic uh, details of Scripture, and he specifically spoke about the economics of living in Egypt as opposed to up in Canaan and in the Negev. And so Abram has been called by God to get up and leave. In obedience, he got up and leave, and he went into Canaan, and God said to Abram when he went into Canaan, I am going to give this land to your descendants. Abram sacrificed to God there. He prayed to God there, and then he went over a little bit into the Negev. Now, the thing that's noteworthy about Canaan and the Negev is that they're arid to desert. And so you need an awful lot of acres to be able to sustain your livestock. And you don't do a lot of cropping in those places, maybe at an oasis, but there just isn't water. And whatever water there is, is the product, it's like Namibia, okay? Whatever, the, the, whatever sustaining the, the earth gives you is the result what? It's the result of weather. And so you rise and fall in your wealth and in your ability to sustain life according to the rain. All right? And that's the opposite of Egypt, where the whole economy is based on a river, the Nile River, and the fact that the Nile deposits every spring in the floodplain, silt, 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 silt. So our land here is some of the best that you can find in the area for farming, and the reason is it's floodplain. And it's had all this deposit of silt. And so it goes good crops here. That's Egypt. And so we see the theme over and over in Scripture that Egypt is the place of wealth. Egypt is where people go when famine hits. And so this is a story that's repeated again, you remember, with um, Jacob and his sons. Joseph goes down and then a famine hits them. And Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt. And eventually, Jacob and all his sons go down there. And when they ask for land from Pharaoh for their family, here's the explanation. Joseph chooses five of his brothers to make the request. And he's, it's, 
it says, then Joseph, actually it says they, said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. So this is a theme. You see it in Genesis 26.1 where we say, now there was a famine in the land, and then it says, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The beginning of the book of Ruth, we read, now it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So the central reality about this area around Canaan is that it's so dry that if the rains don't show up, there's nothing you can do. Whereas down in Egypt, you can irrigate, you have good soil, you have the water of the Nile, you have the spring floods. And so this is natural that they go down there. Now, the reason that we... Let me say first, we have a tendency immediately, those of us that have been Christians for a while and know the Bible somewhat, to judge Abram for going down to Egypt. And the reason is that when you read the account in Exodus and Numbers of the Israelites, when they are expelled from the land and Moses leads them in the wilderness, we see again and again and again their faithlessness is demonstrated by them saying, let's go back to Egypt. And so going back to Egypt is, is a byword among Christians for our desire to go back to when we were dopers, right? To when we were materialists, to when we were proud, to when... Anybody have a cough drop? Sorry. Do you have one? Thank you. Okay, I have one, thank you. There is water up here, but the cough drops are, seem to be what helps. Thank you, Phil. So we have a tendency to look at this situation with Abram leaving the Negev and going down to Egypt as negative. We think, you know, he's going back to Egypt. Well, he'd never been there. So no, he's not going back to Egypt. But we're just sure that's the beginning problem of this text. He's going to Egypt. Because it's not only that the Israelites said, I want to go back to Egypt, but it's also that then the nation of Israel, when they came under attack, would go down and make truces with Egypt and try to get Egypt to protect them. And so we know of texts like this in Isaiah 31 to 3, God says through his prophet Isaiah, Woe to the rebellious children who execute a plan, but not mine. This is God speaking. They have a plan, but it's not mine. And make an alliance, but not of my spirit. In order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. To take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Woe to the rebellious children, right? That's how it starts. And then he says, therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. Now, the problem with this as a way of approaching our understanding of this text is there's not a hint of it. There's no hint that this is the failure of Abram. And so often when we script, read scripture, we'll focus on some aspect of the story 
to escape the obvious aspect of the story. My favorite one of this is um, the description of the fall, where people will write books and talk about how the failure in the fall was that Adam did not uh, guard Eve from the serpent. He saw the serpent dealing with his wife, and he did not tell the serpent, you stop it, you know. And the Bible doesn't say anything about him being there. It says, and Adam with her took of the fruit. But the word with there doesn't mean geographical proximity. It means he was in solidarity with her. And what does Scripture say? What Scripture actually says is that God said to Adam, what? Because you what? Listen to the voice of your wife. Can you see how a man in America today would want to avoid that particular explicit statement of Scripture and focus on the fact that Adam was just not a man and he didn't defend her? No, what it actually says is he listened to his wife and that's why he fell into sin. And it's Scripture, right? Well, the same thing is true here. What we have is a very clear failure of Abram. What's the failure? The failure is he lies. And it's much worse than him lying, though. We'll get to that in a second. And so we don't need to manufacture explanations of where they went off the tracks. It does not say that God led him to go to Egypt. It does not say that he was faithless when he went to Egypt. Don't import the children of Israel in the wilderness. Don't import Isaiah here. He had no food. His animals had no food. He was dependent on his animals to eat. And so he went to Egypt. That's as, as much as we know. So now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe. So it wasn't just any famine. It was a severe one. Then it says, verse 11, it came about when he came nearer to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, now a word about the names. Abram is what they're called now. Sarah, Abram, and Sarah. God renames them later in the story. Right now they're Abram and Sarai, but it's the same name as Abraham and Sarah. It's like Saul and Peter. All right. I was thinking about thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I. I yeah. Would you like to, yeah, Saul and Paul. Some people want me to, okay, Saul and Paul. Everybody hear it? I made a boo-boo. Everybody hear it? Is that good enough for you? You want me to keep saying it? Okay, all right. All right, all right. He and I sweated together yesterday. So, it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, this is, this is the conflict. This is the problem. Now, what's the problem? Is the problem that Sarai is beautiful? Well... Let's put it this way, if, if she hadn't been beautiful, we would not have had a problem. Now, would we then say that it's all Sarai's fault? How many men would agree? That's the problem. 
Well, I want to focus on something here, and I guarantee you that Calvin does not focus on this because Calvin did not live in such a twisted day as we do. What do you think I'm going to focus on? The Bible, just matter-of-factly, makes a declarative statement about the appearance of a person. She was beautiful, and you don't get the feeling that the Holy Spirit is in angst over having made the statement. Now, do you know why I'm pulling this out? We live in such a hypocritical day that everybody acts as if and talks as if we don't notice somebody's, whether somebody's sallow-complected or fair of complexion, whether somebody has beautiful, ugly hair, whether their hair is lustrous or their hair has split ends and is dull. You know, whether somebody sings prettily or ugly, whether they're a monotone or they can carry a tune, whether somebody is rich or poor, whether somebody is fat or thin, whether somebody is old or young, whether somebody is deaf or hears, blind or sees, whether somebody is facile of tongue or stutters, Right? I mean, have I offended everybody here somehow? Whether somebody's dumb or stupid. Or... (laughs) Both. Both favorites. (laughs) Whether somebody's smart or bright. And the truth is, people, brothers and sisters, the truth is, We absolutely notice everything. We don't miss anything. We know the race. We know the size. We know the height. We know the weight. We know the degree of intellectual brightness or dullness. We don't miss anything. But we have this conspiracy as a country that we're so evolved that we're all egalitarian And it's liberty and fraternity and equality. It's a bunch of bunk. It's a bunch of bunk. And if somebody's concerned about a certain people group being oppressed, you know doggone well that's the people group that you don't need to be concerned about because it's never that, uh, that, that justice is on the throne. Okay? You know, you have the myth of this and the myth of that, and we always think that we've evolved to the point where we're finally being able to deal with our prejudices and our oppressions and everything, and America's in an orgy of repenting about slavery, and it kills 1.3 million unborn children every year. And the dissonance to anybody who's half awake is mind-boggling. But we just get on the train and we've got all these, you know, those things that roll out and everybody's going, yep, we whooped up on slavery and and now everything's, you know, fine in America and I don't see white or black. I'm colorblind. And I don't even know what an Asian is. Would you explain to me what an Asian is? I don't know what an Asian is. And there's no such thing as an ugly woman. And the Bible says, Sarai was beautiful. And then later it says, the Egyptians said something better. The Egyptians didn't just say beautiful. The Egyptians said very beautiful. 
And we're such a bunch of hypocrites that we just read right over that and we don't think that it rebukes us about our lives. Or worse, we think that the Holy Spirit wouldn't speak that way if he'd evolved to the point we have today. That's how you look at the Old Testament. Well, you know, those people were back in ancient times and they, had, they were in bondage to their prejudices and stupidities, but today... Now listen, let me ask you a question. Who makes an ugly woman? You will agree that there are ugly women. Let me put it a different way. Who makes a weak man? You will agree there are weak men. Now, you may not want to agree that there's any, any parallel between an ugly woman and a weak man. And I'll grant you, but I had to come up with something. All right? It's God. It's God. There's not one other diversity in this world that you will find liberals not celebrating until it comes to God's work in the lives of human beings. And then liberals are opposed to every single distinction that God has ever made, starting with man and woman. They will not submit to God's creative diversity when it comes to man. So they're going to obliterate race, they're going to obliterate wealth, they're going to obliterate sex and 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 sex. They're going to obliterate God's distinction of sex, 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 sex. This is insane. God does what he wants to. And when God makes us, there are certain facets of our life that we live with. One has made a man, another has made a woman. One has made thin, one has made fat, one has made old, one has made young. Takes a while to show up. One has nice hair and the other's bald. Go on up there, you old baldy. And we are just so convinced that we've evolved to the point where we don't see these things and we don't judge people on the basis of them. It's a bunch of bunk. You do it and I do it. When I was in seminary, at the end of our third year, the last semester, we took a class called Denominational Standards. And at Gordon-Conwell, they had a whole bunch of different people from different denominations. And so there was a guy named Dean Kemper who was the professor there who was PCUSA. And I was PCUSA, so I took that particular class, Denominational Standards from Dean Kemper. And one of the things you do is you prepare for your denominational tests if you're Presbyterian. The others didn't really have tests, but we had tests and 50% of the people failed their written tests at the end of seminary. So it was a pretty intense class, but one of the things you also did was you learned to fill out your personal information form, and that's the document that's a resume, and it's a denominational standard. You put yourself down on paper. I want to say there were 20 to 30 pages you had to fill out, and then you send that out to the churches that are interested in you, and you hope you get a bite that you might get hired by some church. You send out tons of them, and for me, there were only two that responded two churches. One was in 
Partyville, Wisconsin, and one was in Colstrip, Montana. All right, so those were my choices. And on that form, you have to fill it out in such a way that you conform to the standards of the denomination. And one of the standards of the PCUSA back in 1982 was that it would not allow committees to know and to identify you as male or female. Because they were adamant that, they, that, that every church needed to hire a woman pastor, right? And so the search committees of churches would fill out a document that was an exact reproduction of an EEO document. Any of you in human resources, you know what I'm talking about, right? And this document, they had to sign saying they had given equal consideration to men and women for any pastoral position there was. And you were required to have 50% women on your elders board. And so as Dean Kemper taught this class, he said to us, now, you must not identify whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're married or single, and whether you have children or not, because this is an unfair advantage. The denomination is governing these things in such a way that you may not have an unfair advantage on other people. And he defended the policy, and, and all of us were like, okay, you know. So I filled out my PIF, and I gave it to him to look at. He got done reading it, and he said, Tim, you know, something like, are you crazy? And I said, what? And he said, you didn't mention that you're married and you have children. And I'm like, dude. And he said, well, it's against the rules, but you have lots of narrative in there. Put it in the narrative. Because it's to your advantage. Listen, I, I know absolutely, with no question, the reason I was hired at the two churches that hired me sight unseen, unlike this church, is because of my wife and children. I know everybody likes my wife and children more than they like me. This is not news to me, right? But you guys, do you see the hypocrisy of our life we think that we believe in liberty, fraternity, and equality, right? We think that we've evolved to the point where we don't make judgments based on superficial characteristics. And I say to you, okay, so is black and white, Asian and Indian, are those superficial characteristics? All of us just love it when we get customer service in India, right? It's just a superficial characteristic. We're hypocrites. We all know when we're dealing with pretty and ugly. We all know when we're dealing with short and tall. We all know when we're dealing with stuttering or facile of tongue. We all know everything. And here's the problem. If we continue to be hypocrites with one another, number one, we don't rejoice in the beauty that God gives us. And number two, we don't teach our children to trust God in the difficult things in their life. And so if we have an ugly girl and we say there is no such thing as ugly, we're lying to them. 
And what we end up producing is a nation of people who are always complaining to God. That God made them short, God made them fat, God made them stupid, God made them blind, God made them... Oh, I'm not supposed to say blind. What's the euphemism now? Visually impaired. Thank you. He works for the government. You guys, do you understand what I'm saying to you? You think of the things about your life that you can't stand. Be specific. Think about them right now. The thing about your brain, the thing about your personality, the thing about the way you talk, the thing about the way you look. Then you think about the things that your children, your little children, can't stand about themselves. What are you going to do? Are you going to teach them that this is a gift from God? And that they trust God in his dispensations in their life? Or are you going to just spend your whole life saying God's nasty because he made you ugly? Now, I'm not suggesting that children say to their children that they're ugly. Although, no, I'm not looking at you, David. I think you're beautiful. And I'll bet your mother thinks you're beautiful, too. His wife and daughter. (laughs) Moses had God come to him and say to him, Moses, I want you to go be a prophet to Pharaoh. And Moses had every single reason to not want to have to do that. And so he kept saying no. And God kept saying, I want you to go to Egypt. And finally, what did Moses say? Well, we pick up this story in Exodus 4, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, so we are already dealing with him refusing to do what God said. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, not yesterday, not any time, and certainly not now, I'm not eloquent. It seems to be somewhat eloquent as he makes his case right? For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now then go and I even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Listen, mama and dad, you need to teach your children that they can trust God with their limitations. Never teach them to complain. Never. Children who complain do not have faith. Children who complain grow up to always say that it's somebody else's fault and not theirs. Listen, do you hear me? What is America today but a nation of victims? Those of you from other cultures, you must see this so clearly. (laughs) America's filled with people that say, Mom, Mama, don't love me. Mom, Mama, don't love me. My Mama, no, no, don't love me. My parents got divorced. My dad had a temper. It's like roosters crowing. It's like Charlie and Susie's roosters crowing. You know, that's what people from other... I remember the Mexican guy that came to preach 
at our church, and that's what he said about America. He said, everything in America is about people complaining that their mother doesn't love them. And he said, in Mexico, we know enough to take a stick and stir up the outhouse. We don't do it. Any of you know anything about outhouses? When you stir an outhouse, the smell gets horrible. And that's what America is. It's a terrible stink because everybody's stirring up the muck. My mother doesn't love me. My mother doesn't love me. My mother doesn't love me. And so, yes, Sarah's beautiful. And you think, well, to say Sarah's beautiful is not to say that Sarah's ugly or her sister is ugly. So I knew you were going to say that. So this is what it says in Genesis about another couple of women. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but, the adversative, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. (laughs) In other words, whatever weak eyes were, they were ugly. And it probably has something to do with with the fact that You know, he wanted to marry Rachel. And the dad had to pawn Leah off on him. Listen. Love people without regard to their appearance. Love them without regard to their vision. Love them without regard to whether they grew up in an intact family or a broken one. Love them without regard to whether or not they're rich or poor. Serve them. Be a neighbor to those who have weaknesses. But when I say that, I'm not saying to you, be a neighbor to those who have complaints. As a matter of fact, don't do anything to help people who complain. People who complain are oppressing everybody else by their complaints. There are enough truly needy people in the world for you to spend your life caring for them. But make a particular point of not caring for those who complain about being needy. Right? Right? Sarah was beautiful. And then the Egyptians said she's, quote, very beautiful. And so she's singled out and she has an asset. Now, here's the problem. If you know about the story of King David and Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, you know what kings, rulers, governors normally do, which is that they say that they're above the law, that because they enforce the law, they're above the law. Do you understand this? And so David saw a woman bathing and he decided he was going to take her. So he took her. He brought her in the castle and he bedded her. And then what did he do? He tried to cover it up, and that failing, he killed, he murdered her husband. Remember this. This is what rulers in the ancient world did. Now, why did they do it? Because we look down on it, and and we're just so sure, again, that we're superior to it, right? They were so horrible back then. Do you know why they did it? They did it because in the ancient world, nobody would commit adultery. Now, I'm not going to go into why they wouldn't commit adultery. It has something to do with wanting to stay alive. And so we look down on them, but what do we have? We have civil magistrates who have taken the, taken the place of individual vengeance because we want the rule of law, 
And these magistrates have given us no-fault divorce. And what is no-fault divorce but the civil magistrate completely abdicating his responsibility to protect the innocent party and to protect the children of that family? You realize that. And so what they end up doing is they end up shuffling off onto other people the responsibility of judging between the innocent and the guilty. Right? And then the innocent and the guilty end up having to solve things themselves. And I ask you, if you could make a decision between getting rid of all the guns in the country or having us bring back the judgment of the courts over marital dissolution and you wanted to avoid the death of children being shot, which do you think would be more effective? Yeah, some people think the guns. I don't. I'm convinced that if we brought back the honor of the marriage bed, and if our civil magistrates once again were willing to discipline adultery, that a huge amount of the violence of our country would be gone. And if you say, well, no, you'd still have guns so people would kill people because they're crazy people and they'd kill people, I say, okay, how about child sexual abuse? No guns involved. Now let's judge. What do you think would end child sexual abuse most quickly in this country? I guarantee it. It would be by bringing blood relatives back and getting rid of the incessant presence in homes of people who are unrelated to the children as they reach puberty. And so we look down on you know, these ancient times, we look down on Pharaoh, we look down on Abraham, we think, oh, what a, what a terrible society that he had to lie about being Sarah's husband in order to keep from dying. But Pharaoh feared God. Pharaoh feared God precisely at the point of adultery. And we just never stop judging the dead people. We never stop. We think we're so evolved and so superior. I don't think so. I'm not saying I want guns. That's not my point. My point is when you look at the fact that we, one of the commentators said adultery today is no big deal. But back in the ancient world, it was a big deal. And it was a big deal specifically with the pagans. We're not even dealing with a son of the covenant here. We're not even dealing with one of God's people. We're dealing with an absolute idolater. But he fears God. He won't commit adultery. And so he sees a beautiful woman. He'll know, I better kill her husband so that I don't commit adultery. And this is what it says in Romans. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Abram sees the, the, the dilemma, and so he says this to Sarai. Verse 13, so please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, this is where it gets really bad. Notice that little statement, well with me because of you. So he, we all see that he's getting her to lie. But what we don't see, because it's behind the text, is that he's also getting her to give up her virtue. He is asking her to use a lie in order to go to bed with an Egyptian. Do you see this? 
Abram is putting the virtue of his wife subordinate to his own life. And the lie is the means whereby he does that. And his scheme works. And his scheme works well. Because she goes ahead and lies for him. There's absolutely no way she could be Pharaoh's concubine or wife. There's absolutely no way without her lying about being Abram's sister. And then she, she beds another man. Intentionally. She tells the lie and then beds another man. And not just any man, but the king of the nation. Okay? It works out well for Abram, doesn't it? He doesn't die. But beyond not dying, what else do we see? Well, we see that Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, the one was taken to Pharaoh's house. And then it says, verse 16, Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, and male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. Isn't that beautiful? So does, does, does crime pay? It pays well, doesn't it? He keeps his life, and he becomes fabulously wealthy. Imagine the kind of money that, the, that Pharaoh in Egypt was able to rain down on him. Not money, but cattle, which was the money of the time. Now, the problem is that you never know what your accounting for your sin is until God speaks. You know, you can have all your cost-benefit analyses, you know, you can run the numbers, and you can think you got off scot-free, right? But God sees everything. God sees everything. And God saw what he did and what his wife did. And it says in verse 17, but... It's that adversative again. You know, he get wealthy, he live, but the Lord struck Abram and Sarai and their children with a terrible plague. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Now, will all of you cop to the fact that you don't like what it says? Well, all of you cop to the fact that if the Bible said what I just said, that you would be much happier with this account of Scripture. Now, what's going on there? What's going on? The problem is that you have a good sense of what God should and shouldn't do at all times. (laughs) We're always sure we know what God should do. And we know that God should have judged Abram and Sarai because they're the ones that misled Pharaoh. They're the guilty ones. But what the Bible actually says is, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And this is more offensive to us than the Bible telling us that Sarai was beautiful. And it's offensive to us because all of us have been raised by mothers who taught us that God is fair. And I know you're going to say to me, why is it the mother? Why isn't it the dad? 
And I say, okay, all of us have been raised by dads who tell us that God is always fair. And so I'll agree with you, God is always fair. But what I'll disagree with you about is that you have the slightest ability to say what is fair yourself. All the time, pastors, elders, I'm sure you've had this as a Christian, you'll run into people who say that they are not worshiping God, they're not obeying God, because God condemns the children in Africa who have never heard of him. It's always Africa. Now, I think there's a much higher chance of people outside of Africa not having heard of Jesus any more than Africans, right? <laughs> and so I had, I, had a, uh, I had a man say this to me this last week, and this is a man that isn't walking with God. Wonderful Christian heritage, not walking with God. What about all the children in Africa? And I said to him, you know, the reason you're asking that question is that you think God isn't fair. And he wouldn't say that, you know, that scared him a little bit to say, well, God isn't fair. But you just ask the question and everybody can draw their own conclusions. You know, what about all the children in Africa? I said, you know, the reason that you ask that question is that you believe that God is not just, he's not fair, he's not And also, you want to live in rebellion against him. And this provides a place for you to judge him and live in limbo. And so this question is always a question that allows us to maintain our distance from God without being so crass as to say God is unjust. Well, what about all the children in Africa, you know, and you throw that out there and it stinks a little bit and you run. Right? But the truth is, this man I was talking to, he knows God. He is not a child in Africa that doesn't know God. He knows God. And so how wicked for us to purport to be concerned about children in Africa while we defy God. And the fact is, whether it's a question about the children in Africa or whether it's us denying original sin. You know what Pascal said? The great French mathematician and philosopher, he says, you know, we look at the fall where one man's sin corrupted us all and we say, how can that be? I wasn't there. I didn't make the decision. I don't even know that man, Adam. And then he says, and yet without this truth of Adam's fall corrupting us all, he says, without this truth, we don't begin to know ourselves. And people, every single time you hit a text like this, you can either choose to continue to delude yourself and to refuse to know God, or you can decide that God is worthy of our praise, that God is worthy of our worship, that God defines justice, that God is the very definition of fair. And that when we stand before his judgment seat, none of us are going to be able to say, that's not fair. And so why would we say it here? Why? Why would we say it here? Do we really believe that American political ideology is superior to God? Or that the French Revolution 
brought in ideas that allowed us finally to escape from God. That's what they'd say. They'd say that liberty, fraternity, and equality releases us from God. But we want to have both God and liberty and fraternity and equality. And there's no way to do it. God is fair. I once was listening to a, uh, to a sermon. Did I tell you this already? I don't think I did. It's a first service. I was listening to a sermon, and a pastor was making the point that God isn't fair. And what he said was that every child needs to grow up in a home where his parents teach him God isn't fair, right? And he said what he did was he was on a business trip, and when he came home, he brought one gift for one of his children. He gave the gift to his child, and then all the other children were like, that's not fair. And he said, God isn't fair. And he left one child with a gift. And I'm sure he didn't come back from the next trip and have four gifts for the other four children. And I'm sure he didn't bring one gift for each individual child all the next trips until he'd gotten them all. <laughs> you know that comedy routine, I forget the name of the woman, the Brit, Catherine Tate. You ever heard that comedy routine? She is not, what? Bothered. You know something? Our sense of justice, our sense of fairness, I hate to tell you this, but God is not bothered. He's not bothered. He's not worried that you won't think he's fair at the judgment seat of God. And there's not one of us here that looks at how God treats Pharaoh and his household that doesn't cringe at it, right? We're all there, right? <laughs> Am I the only one that's raising my hand? Come on, there's not one person here, I don't believe, that does not think that that is wrong until we bring our judgments under the authority of God. And then we think, what a fool am I that I'm judging God? Now listen, you want to know the real amazing thing about this story? The amazing thing about this story is not that God sends terrible plagues on Pharaoh and his household. That's not amazing. That's what you and I all deserve from the moment of the fall. And that's all we deserve from God is punishment. We were present in Adam, our federal head. Okay? The amazing thing is that God is so merciful to Abram and Sarai. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling. What did they deserve? It's utterly appalling what they did. Right? Were you all there? And God is merciful to them. Not only is he merciful, but all through Scripture, God says that Abram is the father of those of us who believe. And so we're not ashamed to name him our father, are we? And yet, look at what he did. And we're not ashamed to call him our father. You know, the thing that just really fries me is how Christians act as if their parents are so godly and if you don't think your parents are godly, inevitably you have a grandmother that prayed for you and was just so godly. And the truth is, 
our parents and our grandparents are just like Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai are you and me. You are just like Abram and Sarai. I am, I'm sorry, it's true. I'm just like Abram and Sarai. And what we need to do is stop setting up all these pecking orders based on our judgments and our notions of fairness and our ability to hide, and that's principally what it is, you know, and begin to recognize that God's mercy has a reason. And the reason is you and your mother and your saintly grandmother. They are not nice. I am not nice. And you are not nice. And if you are, there is no need for God to send his son to that cross. Tali Tavigian is not nice. And that's why the grace of God is visible. Because there's no hope for us. So the real extraordinary thing about this story is not what happens to Pharaoh and his family. They deserved that before Sarai ever came along. The extraordinary thing about this story is that God's merciful to sinners. And so what you want to do is focus yourself precisely at the point in this text where you judge God, where you don't like God, where you don't like what Scripture says, and realize that that's your ugliness. And take that to God and say, please, please, have mercy on me, a sinner. That I am such a proud man that I will choose American political ideology over your character, over your perfections, over your attributes. Forgive me for judging you. Now, one final thing to those of you who are parents. Never lose an opportunity with your children. <laughs> are you ready for this? To dis enamor them of the notion that they are God's gift to the world. I admit that it's cute. And I admit that children are God's gift to the world. But if you raise children who think highly of themselves, they will not think highly of God. And so constantly remind your children of their sin. Pray that God will reveal the awfulness of their sin. And then introduce them to the mercy of God. But if you don't show them their sin and failure, they will never be able to be introduced to the mercy of God. Okay? Okay? Now, I'm going to be around afterwards. This is a hard sermon. And I would love to talk to you about it. I'll stay right here instead of greeting. All comers, you can spit on me, slap me. Just honestly, say anything you want. And I'll just try to help you, okay? But let's close our worship singing if the band would come and lead us in worship. <laughs>